I want to encourage you to take your Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And I must say that as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 3, that from the outset I had thought that what was just a further explanation of what Paul just said in chapter 2 is way beyond that. As I kept digging into the truth, I came to see the profundity of this section. It runs from chapter 3, verses 1, all the way down through verse 13. It is an incredible section, and obviously it gives weight to where we're going into the later half of this book, chapter 4 through 6, where he will exhort us. He always builds the theology first in 1 through 3, then lays down the practice. Let me read for you 3, 1 through 13. You follow along. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is your glory. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Father, would you be our teacher by the sheer power of the written word that comes through the person and work to the Holy, from the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds, to understand something of Scripture, something of the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul, so that we who end up here, if we're not Jewish, as Gentile believers in Christ would understand the plan of God that existed before the foundation of the world. For this we pray in Christ's name, amen. I mean, certainly because the scripture is inspired, and by that we mean the very breath of God, we say that the scripture is infallible, meaning that it is without error. We know that this section was included for a very special reason. And I'm so glad that we, you know, as we work through books expositorily, that we come to sections that we might not stop at, um, 
you know, in, in some cases. But here is one. To get to chapter 4, we have to get to chapter 3. Look at the opening sentence in verse 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then you'll note that the, the sentence really just, at that point... At the end of verse 1, there's actually no predicate there. The sentence just falls off, if you will. It's just broken. And here he is. He's in prison. He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's under house arrest in Rome. And as he's writing with parchment and pen, the sentence is just broken in mid-sentence. Something has sparked his heart. And what Paul does then, from verse 2 down to 13, is he digresses, only to come back to his original thought in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says there, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So I think what's, what's happening here is for this reason, and he was going to launch us into praise and launch us into prayer, but he goes into this parenthesis, if you will, this parenthetical thought from verse 2 down through verse 13, only to come back to what he was going to say for this reason. Verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, What's unusual here if we just stopped for a moment? Again, look at verse 1. For this reason, he says, I, Paul. And I, you just have to stop there just for a second. Because I think it's very unusual in this particular um, prison epistle that Paul comes back to himself. In fact, some people say that the book is so impersonal in some measure, at some places, that he's not the author. In fact, this is really the only place to this point in Ephesians that he has anything to say about himself. And what's so unusual about that, and I've told you this maybe at message one, is he spent more time in the church at Ephesus than any other church all along his journey. In fact, it says in Acts 20, 31, 20, verse 31, that he spent night and day there for a period of three years. No other church has that type of recognition. I mean, this church was pastored by the apostle Paul. I mean, think about that for a second. Amazing in some ways, and there was a litany of other profound people biblically that pastored at that church. But little is said about his personal office. Little is said about in a personal way, except if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But you note that little is said about his journeys. Really, nothing is said about his labors. Nothing is said at this point, up to this point, about his persecutions. He doesn't even really talk about his imprisonment. And he's probably been in jail. It's hard to get a, a, a read. He's been in jail for five years. Probably two in Caesarea, 
two more in Rome and maybe some other months in there, but he's in Rome and he's under house arrest and he says virtually nothing. Now, there may be just a couple reasons for that. First, I think, this is me, is that he was so caught up in the glorious message of Ephesians that he just couldn't stop writing. I think when he got to 1-3 and he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And remember, when he got to verse 3, he just wrote one sentence with a bunch of clauses and a bunch of commas all the way down to verse 14. I just think so overwhelmed was he by the magnitude of his blessings that he was overwhelmed by the message itself. He was overwhelmed, if you will, in a very grand way of the grace of God. That he just never pauses 1, 3 through 14. So that when you get to 1, 15, he launches into prayer. And then by the time you get to chapter 2, he hits the ground running again. But he doesn't even just hit the ground running at 2. He's been running at a fever pitch from 119 when he prayed, beloved, for you. And for all believers that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward you who believe. So I think number one, why does he not say much about himself is because of the revelation, because of the blessing of chapter one, because of the salvation in chapter one, because of the glory of God. All of that was going to his glory and because of the grace of God. But maybe there's a second reason that he's not so personal up until chapter 3. As I mentioned at the beginning, that he's not just writing to Ephesus. There are many who believe that this was not just written to Ephesus, and I said it was because it says that. But there's some of the older manuscripts that omit the word Ephesus. It's in many good ones. And they omit it because uh, they think that it was a circular letter and it wasn't just written to the church at Ephesus. Now, I do believe he wrote it to Ephesus, but I also believed it was written to all those churches in Asia Minor. And he wrote it the church at large, not just the Ephesian believers. And it's possible that after he had pastored there for a little while, he went on to other journeys. He was imprisoned and it's later. And so there's new believers at Ephesus that didn't remember him, but there are many people who were there. Now, as you come into chapter 3, there's a focus here. And the focus of 3, 1 through 13 is all on, biblically speaking, the mystery of Christ. In fact, glance down at verse 3. He says there that this mystery, we'll talk about this, was made known to me by revelation. Look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this is supplied. It's not in the Greek, but he's talking about the mystery. So it's placed in there. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And then in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In fact, it's not the first time he's mentioned the mystery of Christ. Look back to chapter 1. In verse 9, he was making known to us the mystery of his will. 
And so here the focus of 3, verse 1 down through 13, is a mystery. Now, when we speak about a mystery, biblically speaking, we're not talking about a mystery novel. So you got to wipe that out of your mind. We're not talking about a mystery movie. We're not talking about Sherlock Holmes. I'm a reader of Sherlock Holmes, and I've enjoyed a number of those volumes where you find out how Sherlock, at the end of the case, somehow can untangle every web that somebody else couldn't. That's not the word mystery. In fact, as a young boy, I used to read these books called The Hardy Boys, And even Nancy Drew, when I devoured all of those. And so I went through those, and maybe some of you still have your kids read those. And I read all of those. That mystery is something dark, obscure, hard to figure out a secret. But this is not what the Bible means when it talks about a mystery in those verses that I just stated. The Greek word is mysterion. You could understand that. But it means something beyond human knowledge, okay? but has been opened to, up to us by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. In other words, a mystery is something that must be revealed. You must have that and see that by divine revelation. It brings to light what was previously hidden. A movie or a novel, that's mysterious. But here, this is something that is not known. Biblically, this type of mystery, this kind of mystery, again, can only be made known by some sort of divine revelation, and only those who are illuminated by his spirit will comprehend its meaning. Now, you say here, and I'll get to this in the subsequent weeks, what is the mystery? Well, if you glance down on your Bible, you can understand enough of it today. In verse 6, 3-6, this mystery, what is it? It is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Clearly, it is the Gentiles are made um, partakers, if you will, along those who are believing Jews in the church. That's the mystery that's been revealed. Now, you might be saying, but Scott, that's just not new, and I would agree with you. In the Old Testament, It referred to the blessing of Abraham. Do you remember that in Genesis 12? That through you, all the families, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Yes, Genesis 12, 3. In fact, we would know that God would save the Gentiles as well as the Jews from the very beginning. But before the coming of Christ, this happened only as the Gentiles became Jews through what they called proselytizing. In other words, a Gentile would come in, but they would have to go through all the ceremonial laws, and then for sure they would have to become circumcised to become a member of that covenant. But here, as we looked in chapter 2, the mystery revealed makes the ceremonial law obsolete. Do you remember that Christ has broken down the wall? He has made, you know, the two people now one in Christ. So that Jew and Gentile who believe have one access to God the Father. That the blessings cited in chapter 1 come to the Gentiles who come to Christ. 
So the question would be asked then is why here does Paul divert himself? Why when he, 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 for this reason, and I think he was just going to pray, verse 14, but he, he goes on to this digression or this parenthetical thought. Why does he do that? Well, the answer then in verses 1 through 13 will give us and frame the discussion that we'll find in these verses. What Paul does is he begins to unlock, he's got the keys by divine revelation to unlock the mystery of Christ. But he doesn't just unlock the mystery of Christ, he unlocks his role in it. And I'm not saying his role in it to make him predominant. That's not the case because look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, I love that phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He was given insight, he was given revelation by the grace of God to unlock the mystery of Christ and even his role in it. So for this week and the subsequent weeks, here's the keys for unlocking the mystery of Christ. And I think we'll just get to the first one today. It was so wonderful. And as we look at this, I want you to keep in mind because I'm going to roll off Paul's life into your life. And we're going to see some features in his life that play a difference in our life. But first, here's the first key, the prisoner and steward of the mystery. I don't have PowerPoint today, but it's the prisoner and the steward of the mystery. What's going on here? Well, look at it. It says there, you have to understand, his opening line, and again, he's writing under inspiration of God. It's God's word, but it says, for this reason. You just stop there for a second. For what reason? All of chapter two, I think. All of chapter two. We've been brought near. He took the both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, if you will. He gave Jew and Gentile who believe in Christ access to God. It could be that particularly when he says for this reason, he's zeroing in on verses 19 through 22 at the end of chapter 2. So that he tells the Jewish people, you then, so then you are no longer, verse 19 of chapter 2, strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens with the saints, your members of the household of God. That was the message last week, that he namely made you holy, that you secondly were God's household, unbelievably, and then thirdly, you're God's holy temple, your body individually, corporately as the body of Christ. So look again at the text. He says, for this reason, and it's somewhat precious, he says, I, Paul. Now, now listen, the Apostle Paul, if we just stop just for a second, is such a dominant figure in the New Testament, okay, that 13 out of the 27 books were penned by him. 13 out of the 27. And if you're here and you think he wrote Hebrews, that's 14, But here, almost half of the New Testament was written by Paul. That alone is amazing. Now, I think as you look back in all of his other epistles, he had detractors. He had enemies that were constantly challenging his authority. 
In fact, I believe in all probability, Paul's enemies probably claimed that his imprisonment was a sign that he was off in his theology. That he was, his enemies might have said, strange in his views. Maybe they were saying, and they do in other epistles, that he was over the top in his view of the Gentiles. I think his enemies could have reasoned this way. Paul has just gone too far in his view of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, maybe the Judaizers said, must be circumcised. It could be that the Jewish people were saying, we are the true people of God. We have Abraham as our father. Jehovah, Yahweh is our king. We embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Gentiles, maybe they even said, we like you. You are talked about in the Old Testament. But to be the true covenant people of God, there are a few things you must do to come into this community. And then if you get the chapter 2 with all the wonder that we proclaimed, it could have been that they said, Paul, you're mad. What are you saying? I mean, if you're a Hebrew of the Hebrews, if you were trained under Gamaliel, we knew that there was some talk about a coming Messiah, but Paul, you've gone too far. And so here in chapter 3, as Paul begins to pray, I think he was going to pray, he stops and he gives you a window into his heart, into his very soul. And he gives you a window ultimately into the insight of his call and commission as a preacher. Now look what he says there in 3.1. For this reason I, Paul, he says a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Let me say it again. I think he was so fully taken up with the grandeur of who God is. With the majestic nature of what God has done that he's actually lost sight as he writes that he is actually in jail. He's under what we would call house arrest, chained likely uh, to a Roman guard. We see that from Ephesians 6. In fact, one commentator, Robinson, said this right here at this text. It is only as he reaches a resting place in his thought, that he hears, as it were, the clink of his chain and remembers where he is and why he is there. And again, end of quote, the enemies could be thinking, why is Paul, if he is the apostle Paul, a prisoner in Rome? Why does Paul talk so much about unity and he finds himself in jail. Come on, really? I mean, if this guy is really that kind of man of God, why would God allow such an, an imprisonment to such a great man known as Saul or now Paul? I mean, how did he end up in jail? Well, we know that he was arrested in Jerusalem. We know that he was imprisoned at Caesarea. We know that when he was in prison that he appealed to Caesar. We know that he was transferred to Rome. 
where he wrote this letter in prison, and this story is all recounted in the book of Acts, okay? In fact, let me show you. Would you just turn in your Bible or turn over or click over there? Let me just highlight some of this. He's in prison as he writes. Let me piece some of the history back together, and I think it will help you. You remember, I won't go into all of it, Acts chapter 9. Do you remember when he was converted on the road to Damascus with such a bright light, and he spoke, did the Lord speak with Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can read that in 9. But he told Ananias to go lay his hands after Paul was converted, and It says in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, watch this, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Ananias, you go tell him, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name. He's going to carry my glory to the Gentiles. He became an apostle to the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel. Look at verse 16. And I will show him, how would you like this to be your calling? How much he must, what? Suffer for the sake of my name. That's what he's going to show him. How much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. You say, well, what happened to Paul? Well, you go through the journeys in the book of Acts. Look over to Acts 20, chapter 20. Let me just put this together for you, and I think it will come together and make sense. He says, as he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and you say, how do you know he's speaking to the Ephesian elders? Because that's what it says in 2017. You see it there, he came from Miletus, and he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, he pastored there. He's making his way through on one of his journeys and he stops in Miletus and he, and he calls those elders. And you remember when he got to the very end of what he said, look at verse 37 of chapter 20. There was much weeping on the part of all and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful because most of all, the word that he had spoken, that he would, he would not see his face again, and they accompanied to the ship. So he's given his final words to, the, to, the, to these elders. You say, well, what does he say? Look in chapter 20 and verse 20, I did not shrink, he said, from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Praise God. And teaching you in public and from house to house. I kind of like that. You say, why do you kind of like that? Because the guy's got moxie. He's not afraid of people. He, he just, he taught them. He taught them publicly, house to house. Look at 20, verse 21. Testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, watch this. He knew this. I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that, he told the elders, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Boy, nice calling, isn't it? 
He's called. He, he doesn't get to go be some popular guy. He's called to proclaim, and now the Holy Spirit is testifying to him that in every city you go to, there's going to be imprisonment, and there's going to be chains that are awaiting you. But look at verse 24. I do not, I love this verse, account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Isn't that interesting? Most of you might spend your week saying, how do I be safe? And how do I be secure? It's not all wrong. How do I secure my children? What's going to happen here? And Paul says, I don't count my life (laughs) as any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And so it awaited him. Look over in chapter 21 in verse 10. He goes to Jerusalem And while we were staying, and I'm in verse 10, 10, for many days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and this is a real prophet, and bound his own feet and hands in 2111. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will uh, bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he heard this, we and the people uh, there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. And I love this. For I, am not, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they're weeping. I think maybe somebody would have said to him, hey, Paul, listen. Not only does the spirit testify, but Agabus took his belt off and said, the guy who goes there is going to be bound and put into prison. And he says, listen, I'm not only willing to be put into prison, I would be willing to have my life taken. And so what a, what a great thought. He says, uh, verse 14, since he would not be, 2114, be persuaded We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, he got ready and he went up to what? Jerusalem. You talk about a stud. And we got pastors afraid. And then there's this guy. And this kind of calling. And this kind of conviction. Bound deep in his heart. He knew his calling. He knew who he was. And then it goes on. Can I show you just a little bit more in chapter 22? It says there that as he's, actually in 21, if you go 21 verse 27, you say, how do you get in jail when the seven days, 21 verse 27, the seven days were completed, the Jews in Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! Just fake. This is a man who is teaching everyone uh, everywhere against the people and the law. That's somewhat true. Because he just told that the wall and the partition was broken down. And he, and he says, moreover, 21 verse 28, he even brought, a, he brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy temple. That's not true. Look at verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, isn't it interesting? Uh, the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and all the people ran together. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut and they were all seeking. They're not just mad. 
They were seeking to kill him. And a word came from the tribute of the cohort that in all Jerusalem was in confusion. And it says there in verse 32, he at, one, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And then when they saw him, uh, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and inquired and ordered him to be bound with chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And they just kept shouting. You say, how did he get in prison? For preaching. It's like my friend right now, James Code, is in an orange jumpsuit in Canada for preaching the gospel. All the while they let pedophiles out of prison. And here's Paul, he's just preaching the good news of salvation and he's ushered in, if you will, to this prison. And you know, you can read the rest of 23 and 24 and 25. He, he gives his defense before Felix. He gives his defense before Festus. Then in chapter 25, he appeals to Caesar. Then in chapter 26, he gets all the way to Rome and he talks with King Agrippa. Unbelievable. You say, well, why did all of this happen? Listen. Acts 9, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and before what? Kings. For kings. Look back at Ephesians right now. There's so much there in Acts 27. You might read that on your own. But if you look back in chapter 3, he kind of puts a, a tie here. For this reason, I, Paul, and I want you to know what he states there. And you can see it and read it. A prisoner for, what does it say? Christ Jesus. It stuns me that he never called himself a prisoner of Rome. He never said that he was a prisoner of Caesar. He never said he was a prisoner of the soldiers. He said he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus who is in absolute control of every detail of his entire life. Now it's interesting for Paul that in every reference of Paul as a prisoner, he stresses the fact here in 3.1 he's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. In the book of Philemon, in 1.9, he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. In Ephesians 4.1, he's called a prisoner of the Lord. So for five years, two years in Caesarea, at least two years in Rome, he is a prisoner. He is writing, beloved, in a Roman jail cell. But he calls himself not a prisoner of Rome or the Jews or the Gentiles, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I love that. Paul is saying, far from this event, my imprisonment, detracting from the gospel, he's actually saying it's glorious. Now, to encourage these who are reading, look down in 3.13. He said, so I do not, I ask you, he says, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. You say, how could it be for their glory? Well, beloved, listen, sovereignly, and you need to listen carefully because I'm going to say something to you. It was while he was under house arrest that he penned four letters. You're holding 
13 of the 27 in your lap are on your screen. But while he was under house arrest, he penned Ephesians. He penned Philippians. He penned Colossians. And he wrote Philemon. In fact, it was under this arrest that he said what he said in, in the book of Philippians. Would you just turn a couple pages to the right there? Do you remember when he said this in Philippians chapter 1? He says, remember he's in prison there. This is one of the prison epistles, okay? He says in seven, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. What a dear man. For you are all partakers with me of grace. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. You say, well, how did that go for him? Look down in verse 12. I want you to know, Philippians 1.12, brothers, that what has happened to me has really, hap- has, has really served, he said, to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without, what, fear. He says this has turned out for your glory, for my good, for the glory of God. A group of our pastors went down this last week. We, we, we went down to the Unshepherds Conference. Don't tell anybody. We were sitting there while John MacArthur did a, a live stream event. There wasn't many people there because of the situation which we find ourselves in. He, he just closed it down, and we understand that. But the next day, we had an opportunity to to speak with John, and it was just great for, I don't know, 12 of us to get around him and ask some questions, because he wasn't so busy the next day, and, and uh, he showed us uh, something on his phone where he had a text back from James Coates, you know, who's a TMS graduate I preached in his church a few years ago, and it was a, he, it was a text from James' wife, Erin Coates, on his thankfulness to suffer even in this way. But the reason I'm telling you that is even though they came and arrested James, if you look online, you'll notice that his church has tripled in that time. So far from shutting them down in Canada, there was a picture on the web that his church has tripled. So though I, I, my, my heart goes out to him, and they're letting people out in Tulare County that you ought to be wise as, as parents and grandparents, you understand as he, James, and here Paul, is put in, they showed a picture of his church and it's three times the capacity. So while some men are ducking and hiding, he gets put in an orange jumpsuit, cuffed with his hands, cuffed by his feet, eating very little, losing weight, and they just had a hearing for him on Thursday, and they delayed it till May. It's unbelievable. But here what Paul is saying is, listen, my imprisonment, at least in Philippians, has turned out greater for the gospel that far more people have confidence in the Lord by my imprisonment and is much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now, you know that in his church, it was just next man up. 
And they could equally be there today and arresting the next guy and the next guy who's been taking James' place. So even though he gets hauled off, they're still going. And they recognize that. And so this is where he is. Pray for him. But Paul says, do you catch it? I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In fact, look at the text back in Ephesians 3. He's, and I like how he said this. He says, I'm a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I love that. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. Look at verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, to the Gentiles. And when it says assuming that you've heard, it's in the language what we call a first class conditional clause. And you're, you're reading that in the ESV, assuming that you've heard, it, it probably is stating because you have heard. Because you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now you'll note there in verse 2, look at it. He was given a stewardship of God's grace. The word stewardship there, maybe if you're holding a different translation, it says the administration. What does that word mean? It just means the management of a household business. He was made a steward, if you will, by God's grace which was given to me, Paul says, for you, if you will. It was given to me. You know, four different times, you can't miss it. Look at verse 2 of God's grace that was given, it says, given to me for you. Look at verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've already written, he says. Verse 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. And then look at verse 8. To me, humble, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. And here it was. To preach to the Gentiles, not himself, but the unsearchable riches of Christ. I don't think he ever got over that, beloved. He called me by his grace. You say, well, why should we listen to Paul? Well, he received direct revelation from the Lord 14 to 17 years after his conversion. Go look that up in Galatians 2. 14 to 17 years being discipled by Jesus Christ. He picks up pen on parchment and he pens, if you will, the apostles' doctrine along with the others and the prophets. But all of it was a grace given to me. Paul recognized in Galatians 1.15, he called me by his grace. He says in Galatians 2, 9, that the other apostles perceived that this grace was given to me. So beloved, enough to say that he speaks authoritatively to us. He was called, he was commissioned by God's grace, the undeserved favor of God. And here, beloved, let me just make this distinction. I don't think he's talking about the grace of salvation, okay? I think he's talking about the grace of apostleship. All of us have been saved by the grace of God, Ephesians 2.8. But I think really here he's talking about not just the grace and salvation, but the grace that was given to him in gifting. He speaks of this in Romans 1.1. He speaks there of grace and apostleship. He speaks uh, of the special stewardship that the, uh, it says that has been given me for you. That's Romans 1.1 and 1.5 for the benefit of Gentile believers. In fact, he says, and I'll send you my notes if you want them, in Romans eleven thirteen, 13, he says, I'm an apostle 
of the Gentiles. So that's the grace that he's speaking here. He said in Romans 15, he said, I've written to you boldly on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. What a wonderful truth. Paul was called by God to minister not for his own purpose. I love this, for the sake of the Gentiles. Listen, as God has endowed each of us with a gift, according to Ephesians 4, 7, he's given that not for your own benefit. He's given that to you for the benefit of others. All spiritual gifts that he gives out are to give to others. And here Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now let me just draw this in. There's only one reason why Paul was able to preach Christ before kings. And it is because he found himself in jail. It's a radical thought. You're going to suffer. He knew he was going to be imprisoned. He gets imprisoned And now he's under house arrest. He's writing the book that we're holding in our lap. And let me just make this point to you. The pathway that God provided this wonderful gospel was a Roman cell. He is a prisoner, number one key, and a steward, if you will, of the mystery of Christ. Now let me just draw this home to you. When you look at Paul's life, I doubt any of you would, would doubt this. We would say wholeheartedly that he knew God. None of us are going to say that he didn't know God. In fact, he knew God in such an amazing way. And because he looked at, he knew God, he looked at every trial from God's perspective. So he knew two truths, and this is what I want to draw to your life. Number one, what did he know about God? He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God, number one, was sovereign. In other words, that he was in control of his life. That even if I go to Jerusalem, I'm not only being willing to be imprisoned and bound, I'm willing to die because that's what Ananias told him in Acts chapter 9. And you may be here, and I'm just directing this to you, so I'm going another angle here. Are you aware that he's in control of every aspect of your life? It says, and you can quote it with me, and put it in your situation right now in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for our what? Our good. Do you believe that now? Do you believe that every financial difficulty you have every relationship difficulty, every sense of anxiety that you have right now, you are bound by the promise of God that all things work together for our good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. No wonder Paul could say in Philippians 4, 6 to be anxious for what? Nothing. Because he's in sovereign control. And when you understand, and I understand, the providence of God, it will lift our spirits beyond just the earthly, beyond the mundane. That's why James could say, writing 
the first book written in James 1, 2, you know that by heart. Consider it all, what? Joy, my brethren, when you encounter these various trials. In fact, he uses the word various there in the Old Testament in what we would call the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, obviously in Hebrew, but in the Septuagint, it speaks of Joseph's coat of many colors. So count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Let me just step back for a second. If I were Paul, and I'm not, I'm just, a, just Scott Artavanis, I think I might have said something like this to God. God, you're blowing your plan. <laughs> you called me, at least you told me this in Acts 9, to preach the gospel. And how can I preach God When I'm sitting in house arrest, Ephesians 6, chained to this Roman soldier. But obviously that's me and that's not Paul. Let me ask you, do you believe in God's sovereignty? Some of you have faced great difficulties this year. But do you trust him? Right now, just you put yourself in this. As he stretches your faith. Are you holding on to the promises of God for your health? I'm encouraging you. For your finances, for your relationships. Maybe some of you have experienced a broken relationship in some measure with family or friends or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. So I'm asking you as you come in right now, are you complaining? I'm preaching to myself. Are you grumbling or are you rejoicing as Paul did? Because when at another imprisonment, remember this in Acts 16, he's singing and praising God, but he knew that God was sovereign. He trusted him. Do you believe that right now that God is in absolute control of every single event in your life? Are you trusting him? See, Paul did. He knew God, and I pray that even today we would put all of our hope in the promises of God. And one final point. Paul knew God called him to sacrifice. Or he knew that he called him, let me finish that, to sacrificial service. Listen, the most important thing for Paul was not his safety, was not his security, but his service to Christ. In fact, when he was called, it says in Acts 9.16 as we read, he's a chosen instrument of mine and he needs to know how much he's going to suffer. Ananias speaking for the Lord, how he must suffer for the sake of my name. To the point in Acts 20 as we read, I don't count my life of any value. I don't count my life as precious to myself. I just pray that we got some kids over in the generation building, who are more concerned with the gospel than they are Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, amen? I pray that we have some kids that are gonna grow up hearing solid doctrine so that, their tr- that the character is formed and forged, if you will, in the an- anvil of difficulties and trials. But 
Paul knew he was called to sacrifice. In fact, he said in 2 Timothy 4, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. Thinking just now, i got to be careful how I say this, but months ago, okay, months ago, a year ago, maybe just over a year, I had a man walk up to me. It may, it may be COVID hit, and he, he was here maybe in May. And he said, Pastor Scott, I'm so glad that we're here. He, he said, our church is just shut down. And I, I said, you mean, you're like, you're meeting outside. No, we're not meeting outside. So it might have been deeper as COVID went. He says, we just come because I'm just thankful that Grace Church of the Valley is open. And I just, I went away from that. And I, I thought, how do you not open if you're a shepherd? I mean, I'm so thankful that part of our elder board was, hey, we're going to move forward. But I look at Paul. He, he, his life was one of sacrifice, and let me say to you, so should yours be, and so should mine be. Listen, everything you have, everything you possess, every gift that's been given to you, every ability that you have has been given by God to lay aid the life of others. Can you imagine what our church would be like? It could be that if everybody was recognizing their gift and so on fire for the Lord that maybe those windows up there would get steamed up and you couldn't even see outside. Listen, as Jesus laid down his life for you, we ought to lay our life down for others. What has God given to you in terms of gifts, in terms of resources, in terms of wealth, in terms of spiritual gifts, because you're a steward. So what do you mean I'm a steward? Paul's a steward. That's Paul, Scott. No, I mean, you can go look it up, First Peter 4.10. As each, that's each of you, has received a special gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What are you doing <laughs> with your stewardship? I mean, you're going to stand before the Lord, and so am I. What are you doing with your stewardship? And so many of you are serving, but some aren't. And, and, and I'm just asking you, what kind of steward in my own heart am I? What kind of steward are you? He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that he had called him to sacrificial service. Adoniram Judson, famous missionary, he lived in the mid-1800s, graduated from seminary, after he was done with seminary, he received a fashionable call to go pastor a church, actually to become the assistant pastor of a very upscaled church in Boston to become that. And everyone congratulated him. Of course, his mother and his sister rejoiced that he could live at home with them and do his life work. But Judson shook his head. He said, my work is not here he said, God is calling me beyond the seas. And he said, to serve here, even to serve God in his ministry, I feel would only be partial obedience, and I could not be happy in that. And although his biography would say that it went on to cost him a great struggle, he left mother and sister to follow the heavenly call. That fashionable church in Boston still stands today. 
but Judson's churches in Burma produced 50,000 converts in his own lifetime and his influence was felt around the world. I pray that God gives us some young people who have that kind of boldness and I'm thankful for you. Be bold in the days ahead. Would you bow your head with me?